Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Big Al, pseudonymous Bitcoiner who's written articles with Alan Farrington. We talk about his article, Only the Strong Survive. It's a deep 48-page analysis of the DeFi ecosystem and why he and Alan think there's nothing really there. Big Al, how's everything going? Everything's great, Jimmy. Glad to be on. Yeah. Uh, Where in the world are you roughly right now? I'm on the east coast of the United States. Without doxing myself, that's where I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully things aren't too bad for you because the East Coast is a very long stretch. You got like almost communist places like New York and very free places like Florida. So, you know, hopefully you're in one of the better places. (laughs) Hopefully, yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I got you on here because you and Alan wrote this Only the Strong Survive, you know, 48-page PDF paper. I know it's like, I could tell it was like a labor of love. So before we get into sort of like the meat of this thing, what led you to kind of make it? And, you know, what was the impetus, I guess, for writing this, you know, like what should really be just a book? Now, it's it's a great question. So I think it goes to, and I know Alan would have loved to be here, but Alan and I have known each other for years. And over the past year, especially, we've just continuously chatted about Bitcoin and then quote unquote crypto more broadly, especially as this new advent of, you know, quote unquote DeFi has come to pass. Mm -hmm. And as we were investigating it, we were, you know, trying to be as open minded as possible. Frankly, I was excited when I heard, oh, DeFi. You know, because the the mm. concept is beautiful, and mm. so we were doing this work, and as we were reading through it, we we just came to a decision that I believe it was him who initiated. It was like, do you want to just write something on this? And initially, we thought it would be something short. And by the way, the forty eight pages. This is the shortened version. It was seventy two pages at one point. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are reading the shortened version of the only the strong survive. But I would say it was. Look, this is not some gospel or some definitive paper. It was our opinions put as it took us, I believe, five months to write it. We started maybe six months ago. It took us five months to write it, editing and everything. We just tried to be as thorough as possible to represent our opinions as we went through all the onion layers of what we were seeing going on in the ecosystem today. Oh, so it came out as like sort of like an objective assessment of what you thought DeFi was given your background. That's correct. Yes. Hmm. So without doxing yourself, what is your background? Where do you come from and why are you qualified to speak about this sort of thing? (laughs) Well, I'm probably not qualified to speak about anything, but my background, (laughs) how I got into the space was, you know, I'd been doing game theory research for some time and I fell into, I'd learned about Bitcoin back in 2014 and they got more into it in 2015 based off of that research and sort of the idea of these consensus mechanisms and the incentives that are surrounding these consensus mechanisms, a lot about what game theory and decision theory is about. And so I started in that. And then my background now today, without doxing myself too much, I work in traditional finance or TradFi, as people in this community like to call it. And I work at a a hedge fund here in the United States. I do other things in the Bitcoin ecosystem, but it would be difficult to disclose that without making it very clear who I am. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah, this is, I mean, really well done work. And I got to commend you on just how 
how well researched it is and like some of the details I, I had no idea about like the level of rehypothecation in DeFi, for example. But before we get into all of that, one of the things that really struck me about your article is that you say we all know that DeFi is not decentralized. I think that much is absolutely clear. Just the platform that it's on and everything else, it's got multiple single points of failure and everything else. So that part was obvious to me. The contention that DeFi is not finance or crypto is not finance, as you define it in the paper. I mean, the current instantiation of DeFi on Ethereum, you define as crypto here. Crypto is not finance. Could you explain for the audience what you exactly mean by it not being finance? Absolutely. And it's a big point. So I'm going to try to distill it as best as possible for your viewers. I think that in the fundamental view of what they are calling DeFi is that they're trying to create assets and finance inherently has to have a monetary base layer. Any financial system needs to have a strong judicial and monetary base layer to create any value off of it, any long-term value outside of just speculation. But what we're seeing in quote-unquote crypto, and it might be good to go into what you know, we let the market define crypto in this paper. But when when you're using things and you're bootstrapping value based off of quote unquote utility, it is difficult to call what you are seeing as yields because there is no connection to real world value. There is no connection to why a yield actually exists. And that is really the horcrux of the argument that Alan and I make in this paper is that a lot of why DeFi and why there's been excitement around it is the yields. But these are not real yields because they do not have yields in real world tied assets. They have yields in rehypothecated tokens. And that's probably the strongest point that we make in this paper. Well, so explain that a little bit. So you're talking about, you know, yield farming, obviously, and how, you know, they, a lot of people have this illusion that they are making some money off of basically like, moving numbers around somehow in some ledger somewhere, and somehow they end up with more than they had. And I think what what you're contending here is that this is all illusory, that there's no actual real value. It's all based on capital inflows from new investors. So can you explain that a little more, especially with regard to why the yield that they think they're getting isn't actually yield in in the proper sense of the term, and that there's no actual production coming out of this whole thing? Absolutely. And I'm going to start with just one statement that I like to make is that the as we dug through the onion layers here, one thing that Alan and I came to is that unfortunately, this instantiation of DeFi created the worst parts of our current financial system and sort of put them in and thought that was real finance. And mm. And why is it not real yield? Because inherently what these tokens are trying to be are utility tokens. So Mm. think of an iTunes gift card or think of other things of those nature. They inherently do not want to accrue long-term value. You use them just like personal or professional inventories. No company wants to hold inventory longer than they can get it off their books. Persons want to not hold inventories that they use longer than they need to use them, similar to an iTunes gift card back in my day when I used to gift them (laughs) for birthdays. (laughs) But the inherent yields that you're getting in this ecosystem is that you've had this self-created token that mm. is saying that they have this certain utility, but inherently that utility cannot win the fight for liquidity. And none of this ecosystem is saying that they want to be a base monetary asset. Yields need to be derived off of a base monetary asset 
or an mm. asset that people use for productive means in their actual lives. So where I could be proven wrong, which is jumping way too far in, in probably <laughs> our discussion, is if a lumber company or something that you're going to do to renovate your patio or your kitchen or whatnot somehow managed to use the capital markets in DeFi to gain actual access to liquidity and the capital markets, okay, then I would have to take a second look. But we simply have not seen that. That is simply not what we are seeing today. Mm. Well, what are we seeing today then? Like, where is the money going and where is the money coming from? Because if it's not by people that are actually using the loans for some productive capital use, what are they using it for? Well, speculation. And Mm. speculation in of itself is not only perfectly fine, it is actually good. Speculation funds some of the best technological advancements throughout all of history. But it is speculation on the fact that these utility tokens will continue to have more speculative value in them. And until we can prove why they have real-world free cash flows and a real monetary base that people want to hold and use, there is no yields and there is no way to say that they're going to hold their long-term value. Otherwise, stated in a harsher term, and I, I don't want to be too harsh to their ecosystem because I want to be proven wrong. But actually, part of this paper was to be proven wrong. I would love a counter paper by somebody who's significantly smarter than us. But the it's known as greater full investing in a more traditional sense. Hmm. Yeah, which is, of course, all about pumping and dumping and all of that, which we're very familiar with in this space. But you mentioned the fight for liquidity. And this is something that maybe a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with, or I I think a lot of people call it like the network effect of, of money or whatever. But can you explain what the fight for liquidity is and why, you know, if you have a utility token, most people aren't going to want to hold it for very long? Absolutely. So every asset that a human holds fights for liquidity. And Mm. we can see it with dollars, we can see it with real estate, we can see it with equities, and it depends on the certain market conditions. But in the most base sense, in the way to discuss a utility token, I'm going to keep coming back to an iTunes gift card because it makes the most sense (laughs) to me, is that you never got an iTunes gift card and thought of it as, you know, 15 or $25 of like, currency and monetary value that you're going to hold. You thought it as utility to purchase the songs that you wanted on the iTunes store when you were growing Mm -hmm. up. And so you utilized that. And so there was no reason for there to be an iTunes token and that to actually accrue long-term value because you would simply want to move the asset outside of that utility token. And I I do believe, uh, to give credit, one of the greatest papers written in this space was John Pfeffer's paper on this, I think in 2017, if I have it correct, where he describes this coming from also an institutional background of, you know, utility things, no company holds inventories longer than they have to. This is why Amazon is so successful. No, and no person holds inventories longer than they have to. So I use the iTunes gift card example as the personal utility example. So what you're saying is all these tokens ultimately are fighting for liquidity against something like Bitcoin, which uh, which has much higher liquidity and people want to hold it, whereas their thing is poorer in that liquidity area. And therefore, it's something that people aren't going to want to hold. And therefore, there's more sell pressure. Can you spell that out a little bit? Absolutely. So when it comes to liquidity in the sense of a market, one of these tokens could have 
you know, $10 billion in liquidity of wash trading or whoever the insiders are who want, you know, this token to pump. And mm-hmm. they could, that's not what we're talking about in liquidity. We're talking about being able to have a base monetary asset at the end of the day. Because mm-hmm. why do people hold these things realistically, the vast majority? They believe they can either sell it to somebody else for more or they can garner a yield on it. But those yields are very often denominated in the same token that was made up itself. And when I came in with this very optimistic view, I started scratching my head when I started to see that you deposit tokens, then earn yield in the same underlying asset, which in and of itself is not trying to be a monetary asset. And that is really the most important thing to take away. You cannot build an economy, which is what we're trying to do here, without a base monetary asset. It just Mm. never been done. Well, so without that base monetary asset, they are sort of like giving away more of their token or of some, you know, a lot of the ones that you point out are somehow governance tokens, which really seem very kind of circular, right? Like you're getting tokens to govern the asset and that gives you more value somehow because more people (laughs) like... Everything kind of like depends on the ecosystem continuing to go up in order for any of these incentives to work. Like, why is it designed this way? It seems very <laughs> strange to me. I don't think I can disagree with you. It's, it's <laughs> okay, so you have governance rights. Uh-huh. So what should those governance get you? They should mm-hmm. maybe get you future free cash flows and a base monetary asset. But mm-hmm. a lot of these base chains, I'm not going to harp on any single base chain. They claim that they don't want to be a monetary asset. So mm-hmm. then <laughs> why am I holding this governance token? And if if that base chain is a monetary asset, and this is not a regulatory thing because I have a lot of issues with regulation and I think that I'm not a fan of it. But what you just did is you just created something called equity. <laughs> you have a right to future free cash flows. That's called an equity or a security in traditional markets. And that is not that is not giving credit to where I think regulation is. That is just a definitional fact of what a security or an equity is, mm. if that's what governance tokens are pitching themselves as. Mm. Well, so would you agree with like Gary Gensler that a lot of this stuff is actually a security and they're just sort of pretending otherwise to get around regulation or get around certain laws that might be very harmful for them? <laughs> I'm going to be careful here because I don't want to <laughs> say much about the SEC. Uh-huh. The What I would say is there is certainly regulatory arbitrage going on. Mm. I think that those who know, know that. Uh, mm. They can't admit it. Mm. And... Whether I agree with Gary Gensler or not is a whole different discussion I don't want to get into, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but you do agree that this is part of the motivation for why they're doing it this particular way as opposed to uh, you know, something that might be considered a lot more legitimate and following the rules that the SEC has set. Absolutely. And again, I don't necessarily agree. I think that, again, the idea of decentralized finance is beautiful. So sometimes that will... like the powers that be the SEC or other government institutions will not like what can come out of a fair decentralized finance system. But Mm. yeah, I I just, (laughs) I just don't want to comment too much on where my views on the SEC, but yes, absolutely. I do agree that there is certainly an element of regulatory arbitrage going on in the DeFi ecosystem. Okay. Well, another thing that you point out is this poor economic signal for coordinating security costs. And could you explain that a little bit? What is the coordinating security costs that needs to be 
economically signaled, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So I think we talk on a, a couple different ways. At its fundamental level, coordinating economic security cost is the innovation that Bitcoin created and mm-hmm. Satoshi created via old technologies combining them, right? Via proof of work, blockchain or time chain, however you want to define it, the market can define it as they please, and cryptography. But what we're seeing is that there is some well, with the tokens, I'm not really even sure what the economic signaling is in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's already a concern. I think it seems to be an insider game. Proof of stake is a whole different thing. And I get very concerned when I see the ideas of proof of stake because it starts to look a lot like an oligarchy instead of anyone can join in. And then there is another sub point that we had made on Ethereum being this idea of it is a token for you to use decentralized computing. But Mm. the more that it's being used, the more expensive it gets. So Mm. if you think of it as a utility, as decentralized computing, not a monetary asset, like what Bitcoin is just trying to be a base layer monetary asset and you can build off of it, is that you have poor economic signaling in the fact that you are passing on your operating costs to your consumer. So the more valuable your network gets, the more expensive it gets, which allows more competitors, which means that the only way you can cheapen it is maybe more centralization. I harped on a lot there. Because you asked me sort of a big question, but that was a hopefully a relatively concise answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this idea that there's this tension between utility and security is the main thing that I got out of that section. Like they really do have sort of like damned if you don't, damned if you do kind of dynamic here, where if they do focus on security, then you know, it gets so expensive that, like you said, they invite in competitors and like essentially they get cheapened away or they can go the other way and make it very, you know, utility friendly. But that comes at the cost of centralization, which takes away sort of like the entire purpose of what they claim to be doing, which is, hey, we're a decentralized finance platform. So, you know, that seems to me the main reason why it can't work. Is that a decent summation? I think it is a decent summation. And I think that it makes me want to mention one thing of the core principles here. Mm. I have not been proven why sufficient decentralization is an actual term Mm. as of today. And I'm open to being proven wrong, but I've not been proven. If we're talking about utility, there's something called cloud providers. There's something called Mm. Amazon Web Services and Google Cloud. They work very efficiently, right? Mm. So this idea that you can you know, centralized, centralized, then why did we build all of this in the first place? Mm -hmm. And there are examples that, albeit, there's a lot to be said about the entrepreneurial attitude of other chains and how they've built out a lot. Mm -hmm. But there, we've clearly seen that this can be built on an actually decentralized network and then layer to it. Just Mm -hmm. like Satoshi said when he was, what was it, 2010 when he mentioned that or 2009, when he was talking about layer twos already back then. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's, we need a firm settlement layer at the end mm. of the day. Well, that kind of reminds me of something that you mentioned a little bit later, which is talking about, you know, like, do you need a token for that? And what you just suggested was that really they're building all of this, which is really nothing, no better than AWS or something like that. But the ostensible reason seems to be so that they can have a token which can have some sort of like speculative frenzy. And ultimately, the answer that you give to the question of do you need a token for that is no, you do not. Uh, So 
what's the like reasoning that they give and what do you think is the real reason why they issue a token? Well, the steel man to us is mm-hmm. that a token incentivizes the early developers and the early founders just like equity would. So mm-hmm. what we're recreating here is just the traditional finance system where <laughs> insiders get, you know, equity early, the venture capitalists get equity early, they're unregulated, they get all the money at front. And then the public can get it once it goes live. Or there's an airdrop, which, of course, we all know is, you know, I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to harp on any of it. We all know what goes on with the airdrops. But, you know, the steel man to Alan and I's argument is quite simple, is that it is necessary because humans do work off of monetary reward. And that's perfectly fine. I'm a huge supporter of that. But do you need a token? I think the most famous case in the DeFi ecosystem is Uniswap before they launched their token, and then SushiSwap. Mm. You don't need a token. Uniswap worked before you had a token. <laughs> it's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And yet they issued one. Why? Why do you think they issued it? Well, there was the whole sushi swap stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Where the LPs were getting this made up token of sushi swap that the market was buying up. I'm not sure who was on the other end of that, or who was actually buying it, but the market thought it was valuable. So they were losing volumes. But I think we both know the answer to that. And I don't want to like <laughs> harp on any singular protocol. I don't want to harp on any team or say they're malaligned with incentives, but money is a very powerful driver of human incentives. And yeah, I'll stop there before I say anything I don't want to. <laughs> you know you are anonymous, right? All right, so, all right, so let's move on to some of the financialization stuff because what you point out with the actual, you know, DeFi or crypto stuff is that there is a significant amount of rehypothecation, leverage and securitization. Can you explain like just how much of that is going on and what you would define each of those things as? Absolutely. So it's really amazing in this regard. And I have to give a lot of credit. The Coinmetrics team, I believe it's probably about two months ago, put out a great report Mm -hmm. as to how you can create from $1,500 in value very easily. You can create $5,000 of value in different protocols, which is like staking ETH and DAI in a a compound pool or an Aave pool. And then you move it to the compound pool and then you restake it. And technically it's all over collateralized. But it is, in fact, once you go through three steps of it, it is not. What you have done is you've, you've created via these, these loans and this reapothecation of assets where you can take loans on your assets then deposit somewhere else, you've created more money out of thin air. And we've seen this in the classic financial system. They've taken their notes from the classic financial system. But unfortunately, those are the parts of the classic financial system that are actually the most dangerous and create the least economic value for the average person. It's just speculation. And speculation again is okay, but simply re So I, I harped on rehypothecation there. I'm happy to go into some of the other stuff, but rehypothecation and securitization are intertwined and very linked. They're very similarly the same thing. Hmm. Well, can you talk about leverage as well? Like what's going on there, like in terms of how levered a lot of these players end up being? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have a numerical answer. I'm sure there's some very smart data analysts out there who's like studied the leverage of of what's going on in the ecosystem. But there is no problem, by the way, with leverage in and of itself. 
the ability to take out loans on assets and the ability to take out debt is, in my opinion, a good thing for general economies. And I believe there's a lot of historical examples to show that capital markets that enable debt and leverage and being able to bet on productive economic means of value tend to do very well for for themselves. But what we're seeing today is the fact that you can go out there and on the trading sense, I mean, in the most egregious regards, I think you can get up to 100x leverage at one point or Mm. 10x. And that's simply just, you know, trading nonsense. But the rehypothecation is also a form of leverage. Mm. And what frightens me is that it's rehypothecation of an asset that I'm not sure has any value in and of itself anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so it's zero times five or something like that. Or I negative. Know, these guys have made up math I've never seen in my mathematics <laughs> courses over the years. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I can imagine. Yeah. So you talk a little bit then about like all of this leverage, all of this rehypothecation, all of this, you know, securitization causing sort of a systemic fragility. Can you explain exactly how it makes everything fragile? Absolutely. So if you believe that the loan that you're taking out as the person who's borrowing or the one who's lending, you have to have a belief that the assets and the underlying value of those assets actually retain some sort of monetary value. Mm. And so what has occurred in multiple different financial crises throughout history, and obviously given our macro conditions, it's not just crypto, quote unquote, or even Bitcoin that is maybe overinflated. It is, you know, equities, real estate, art, everything due to what our central banks around the world are doing, what we're seeing is essentially how it ends. And it always has ended this way is that why it creates a risk is that if capital isn't there to backstop it, when the liquidity comes down and there's a collateral call, right? So someone loses their trade, they made the wrong trade, there's a collateral call. So ETH goes down 50%, Curve token goes down 50%. That is what's the back end of the collateral. That creates Mm -hmm. a, these are all algorithmic, that creates a forced liquidation. And that Mm -hmm. makes an open market sale because the algorithm has to make sure that the other person and the other side and the system has some sort of monetary base. And Mm -hmm. so they force the liquidation sale. And what you get is a classic debt run or a debt failure or a bank run. And in this system, though, what frightens me the most is that the whole system has basically been predicated on the fact that there is actually no base monetary asset. <laughs> so where are you running? You know, mm. at least the US dollar says they're a monetary asset and they've got the guns to back it up. Mm. And that goes for most national currencies. So what you're saying is that once some sort of like big liquidation event happens, that it's going to basically cause contagion on everything within that ecosystem where you know one thing's going to liquidate that's going to cause something else to liquidate really sounds kind of like a house of cards <laughs> yes yes i mean we've taken notes from the icelandic banks we've taken notes from the housing crisis <laughs> um, and i'm not saying these assets will go to zero but all of this leverage and the pseudo leverage mm. will have to be backstopped by somebody who has new capital mm. to come in and buy it. And Alan and I had a lot of discussions internally because we want to give historical examples. But since crypto has been existent or quote unquote crypto has been existent, we have been in a money printing phase of the history of macroeconomics. So there has been capital to backstop these failures of huge drawdowns in the space, even though they're huge. But like, you know, I think you and I have both been through a couple of these, they get backstopped by capital right? Mm. That is willing to speculate on that. And that that is okay. But 
look, the way that it works is, is actually quite simple is exactly like you said, when one part of the house falls, you know, if there's enough reapothecation and enough leverage, it's very similar to what we've seen with Icelandic banks and what we've seen with the real estate market. How does a real estate market and some products on Wall Street crash an entire world's economy? Well, it's because it's all levered on each other. Mm. And the housing in that particular case was the thing that everything was built on. And that that's actually something real, but it was levered so much that, you know, it caused everything else to collapse. But, you know, in the case of this stuff, I, I think what you're saying is that it's not even built on, you know, housing or any anything that's got actual value. <laughs> it's it's just all sort of like made up of ether. That's uh, an intended pun, of course. But yeah, it's it's all just sort of like all fake or that's the way it seemed like to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. Am I wrong? No, people need homes. That's why the system survived that crash because people need homes and there is a backstop to it that people are willing to work a certain amount and create economic output for their home. And it was horrible what happened. But here, do people really need these assets? Is there any tie to what they need here? Or is it just speculation for speculative purposes? That is the question we pose to our counterparts who might believe in these. Well, so let's move on a little bit because you, you talk about some misleading metrics. And I thought your examples were really interesting because essentially what you're saying is a lot of this market capitalization is kind of a, a result of this rehypothecation and leverage. So what you might see as what you might think as you know a significant market cap for something, it's very misleading because a lot of it is like sort of printed into existence or uh, value is sort of like made up more or less. And you point out also that it's got like no liquidity, you know, past a certain amount anyway. So can you talk about the misleading metrics of the De- uh, or the crypto DeFi ecosystem? <laughs> Absolutely. And it actually goes, so I'd like to bring it back to something that everyone can understand. Mm. If I come to you, Jimmy, and I fractionalize a pencil, and I say, hey, Jimmy, for $1, you can have one billionth of this pencil. Trust me, mm. this pencil is going to be worth $10 billion. Mm. And it has real utility because it's a pencil. You buy it from me, one billionth of that pencil for $1, mm. I now own a billion-dollar asset. <laughs> and so in our paper, of course, we go into more real-world examples of what's going on in DeFi. But of course, when you put leverage into a system, when you wash trade the system, when you do what I've described with the pencil, but on a broader scale where you're trading it to and from yourself, you see it with NFTs all the time. You know, I could buy my own NFT from myself via anonymous account, and then I could sell it to someone at a 50% discount and they think they got a 50% discount, <laughs> but I just made up that number. <laughs> no, my, my big Al NFT is worth $500,000. And mm. Jimmy, I'm going to sell it to you at 250 because I like you. Mm. <laughs> that that is a made up liquidity number that 500 was me buying it from myself using mm. a pseudonymous ethereum address or bitcoin address i guess they have bitcoin nfts now too you know i could do that and so i wanted to distill that argument because there's so much we can go into i want to distill into hopefully something every viewer could understand what i mean by fake market caps mm. and what you're saying in this case is that all of these market caps are essentially fake that you know, like what we're seeing in core market cap with all these DeFi tokens in the top 50 and so on, that it's not real. Yeah, it's a stronger statement. I think to a degree, it's fair. I think that in a, like what we see in typical downturns right now, given the excitement around the industry, retail and institutional, 
people might be able to actually sell large portions. Like let's say, uh, you know, some of these large venture capital firms that by the way, own massive parts of these quote unquote decentralized tokens. If they decide to sell, they might be able to sell some of it, right? Without the liquidity just completely drying up and it dropping 70% because there's actually no buyer there at that mm. point. So it's a very classic market thing. But today, it would be too harsh to say that these are completely fake because there is so much excitement, so much new capital coming in that, yes, there is liquidity in these. So you could say they actually, for certain portions of capital, they're worth that. Mm, but not like at the level of the VC where they, they have <laughs> such a large percentage that liquidating that would take many years or something like that. To me, how, I, I want to pose a question to you. How is A16Z in Paradigm? How are they going to dump these bags? <laughs> yeah, that's the big question for how, me. What is their exit strategy? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess they're hoping, it feels like they're hoping that like the retail market will grow big enough that where they can actually dump it. Kind of like, I mean, I guess this is part of their playbook, right? Like, because they've done it with other companies where they've dumped so much money into, say, like an Uber or something like that. And then it goes public and they're able to dump somewhat because then you get like pension funds and things like that, like getting to invest in that stuff. Maybe they're hoping for that. What do you think? Where are they going to? What's their long term strategy there? I mean, if it's dumping on pension funds, I think we're in for a uh, even worse ride down, uh, unfortunately, because I think the pensioners will be upset when their mm. pensions don't come back with something they could, you know, I don't know. That's that's why I sort of posed it to you. It was one of those things where, <laughs> you know, I laughed to myself. I'm like, what's the exit strategy here? Um. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know a lot of those people and I don't think, I just don't think, you know, hype and making a lot of money on paper has a certain way of manipulating thought. And so mm. I'm not sure they've actually thought it through. Mm. And also, by the way, their business is an AUM game, right? They have mm -hmm. to show paper returns to their investors and then they can raise a new fund and raise a new AUM. Mm. And so they're incentivized to keep the carousel going. Mm. Well, I mean, do you think that carousel actually stops with the DeFi stuff? Because it does feel like, I think you argue very well in the paper, it's not only going to stop, but it has to. Like, there's no actual value or nothing productive actually happening in this ecosystem. And therefore, it relies so much on new capital coming in. Once that capital flow stops and starts going out, I mean, it's going to crash faster than anything else that we've seen in this space. So in that case, what happens? You know, I never want to sound definitive because mm -hmm. I've been wrong so many times, time and time again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm happy. And so perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps there is real world value that people see in holding these assets. But, but yes, in what we're arguing is that if we don't believe that you're garnering real yields, and mm -hmm. if we don't believe that you have a monetary base, what happens once the liquidation start? And there isn't just, there isn't like a, Warren Buffett type investor who sees the free cash flows in the monetary base and understands, okay, well, this is on a discount because it isn't there. It's just they would, someone needs to inject the new capital. So I honestly hope it doesn't end as poorly as I think it will because I think it's going to, I don't think it's going to hurt the venture capitalists of the world. I think it's going to hurt the retail that they've maybe convinced that these things might have value. Mm. Well, so you point out that the yield that a lot of these things get is actually like token governance tokens or something kind of ridiculous like that, which seems 
I mean, like, it, I guess it has some value on the market, so you can sell it and, you know, like reinvest it or something like that. But it does sort of like speak to a psychological thing almost where people want to make money for doing the work. I mean, it, is that the dynamic that's going on here? It, like, because at least with traditional finance, you're providing some financing so that they could do productive work. This This feels like, the complete opposite that it's you know you're providing something so that more people can speculate or something like that yeah i wouldn't give traditional finance a pass i think okay. we see it today in equity markets as well <laughs> you know we've seen finance become this thing where you can just invest and expect i mean recently ridiculous returns obviously inflation adjusted is maybe different but or real inflation not what the cpi tells us but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's going back, Jimmy, to base human instinct is who wouldn't, who wouldn't when you're seeing your friends make multiples on their money, mm. want to jump in and make multiples on your money. And, and yes, it, it goes back to that base instinct. And I don't think we just see that in crypto, quote unquote, or even Bitcoin, or it, we see it in equities, we see it in real estate, we see it in everything, especially in the market we're in today. And so... I don't want to bash them on that because it's actually not, this is not just crypto's fault. This is a broader fault that is happening today that people want to make something for nothing. Mm. But that's, I mean, that's been around forever, Jimmy. We could go into an hour and a half long discussion on <laughs> like the history of human psychology on investing. But it, this has happened time and time and time again. Mm. It does seem exacerbated by fiat money, though. All right, let's move on a little bit because I found section four really interesting, this investment rationale. And this is something that I've been harping about for years, which is that uh, you argue in this section that basically VCs and uh, you know the, the people that are investing in this stuff are making kind of a category error. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. So they've taken the playbook from what was extraordinarily successful in early tech and the early internet, which if you talk to early internet investors and who got it right, they could see why the internet was better, right? It was quicker to communicate information. You could see a path to creating something like a Netflix. Even though not everyone could see it, the greats could see it, right? And you could see a path there as to the clear value and human value proposition. You, you keep seeing me harp on this, right? The category error here, and this is why it's section four, not section one, two, or three, is that we first define the fact that they've taken this error as it is, there's capital coming in, there's high growth, but again, where is the connection to real world value? Where is where people are getting out of this outside of being able to speculate on speculation? So what we're seeing is venture capitalists take advantage not only of that category error, and I'm not accusing them of anything dishonest. I just believe it's a category error, but also their investors, because it's very easy to pitch these fund of funds who don't have the time. This is like 5% of their allocation. And you say, oh, well, this is just like tech in 2000. You don't want to miss it. But it's not. It's not. <laughs> because these companies, even Uber, whatnot, even if you disagree with their valuations, guess what? They're getting paid in a monetary asset, the US dollar. The yield in their stock is in US dollars. <laughs> mm. That's a monetary asset. Mm. So that's the way I view in a shortened version. Uh, obviously, wrote like what, like another 10 pages on that, on why it's a category <laughs> error. <laughs> well, that's what I find so interesting because 
in a sense, you know, it does seem like they, a lot of people are treating this as some sort of like technological innovation rather than, well, rather than what it is, which is some sort of like weird financial machination. And, you know, I suppose it's somewhat easy to make that error because there is sort of like newfangled you know, here's a new algorithm we're going to use or whatever. But the thing I got from your article is computers are almost incidental to the ledger itself. Like you can actually like use like a carrier pigeon like to do it, but you know, like it wouldn't be as convenient and therefore it probably wouldn't work. But like computers are almost incidental to it. And that's the big thing is that you, you know, the big innovation in Bitcoin at least is that you had this common ledger that everyone can look at. And you know, it isn't necessarily the technology part of it as it is sort of this coordination aspect. It's a social innovation. If mm. it were a computer innovation, we should just use AWS because Jeff Bezos has crushed it on that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's something that a lot of people don't seem to get, that it really is sort of like, a social monetary innovation. And, you know, they see something like DeFi and say, oh, we're going to get even more monetary innovation here. And, but as you say, like, well, it's not really finance. If you're not like doing anything productive, it's, it's more speculation. And that seems to be completely lost on people that it's, that there's no there there, that there's no value anywhere, that it, it's all just sort of like this, you know, MLM or pyramid scheme or something like that, where you need inflows of money in order to make everything else work. <laughs> Absolutely. It's also, again, very tempting in human nature. I mean, well, Jimmy, if you and I want to launch a billion dollar token tomorrow, and <laughs> we can, <laughs> we can dump 100 million, it's hard to be tempted against that. Hmm. Well, I guess that's right. It's such a strange situation to see so many people that are sort of like willingly deceiving themselves about this. And it's almost like you wrote this article to just basically say, hey, the emperor has no clothes. Like there, there's nothing <laughs> valuable being made here. Just everyone is naked and they're pretending that like their clothes are really beautiful when it's not. <laughs> I think unfortunately that, yeah, because I, I don't want to insult any of my friends or anybody who does this who are probably significantly smarter than myself. Alan's very smart. He might be smarter than them, but I know myself. But yeah, I, frankly, that is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. So you sort of like conclude this paper with section five, which is all about you know, how this sort of stuff may be coming to Bitcoin on a lot of different second layers. And what really struck me is how you sort of delineated how Bitcoin is architected, that the base layer is the monetary layer. This is the actual actual thing everything settles in. But then you can build stuff on top and none of those things are sort of intertwined with the base layer like it is in Ethereum and everything else. Can you explain sort of how that you know, how that gives advantages to a potential DeFi Bitcoin versus, you know, what we're seeing out there today. Absolutely. And it comes to something I've harped on this whole interview, and it's very simple, actually, is that you cannot build an economy without two things. 
Hmm. a strong judicial system, which I consider the consensus mechanism of Bitcoin to be. It's hmm. something you probably never want to deal with when you're on layer two, right? You never want to actually have a an adversarial lightning node, but you can always go to the Supreme Court and you hope it will be fair. And that's hmm. that's that. But second is a monetary asset. Just like you said, it's a base monetary asset. Something that people still use Bitcoin is you can just hold it and you are using Bitcoin. It is a base monetary asset. So the advantage that they have is not missing a core economic principle that no economy can be built without those two things. And we can argue the judicial part because Ethereum is still proof of work, right? Mm. Um, No matter what we can discuss about the nodes, there is an argument to be made there or other base chains. But on the monetary side, even the founders have openly said they're not trying to be a monetary asset. What we're trying to do, and at least why I got into this, is we're trying to build a whole new economy, a fairer economy, a decentralized finance that is actually decentralized. But you need for an economy to have a base monetary asset. That is really the core point of of that argument. Mm. Well, so why isn't something like Ethereum or Binance Coin or I don't there's so many. <laughs> like why aren't they base monetary assets? Is well, it is it really just a fight for liquidity? Well, one, they're not even trying to be. They're mm-hmm. trying inherently to be utility assets. So that already puts mm-hmm. them at a disadvantage. And if you put yourself at a disadvantage, I mean you're fighting like Again, they could become that. Like, let me be very clear. I am extraordinarily open-minded in this space. I am not a maximalist. I don't identify as it. I don't believe Alan does either, but I don't want to speak for him. It's just that as of today, what I have seen is that they've openly gone against the idea of being a base monetary asset. And they have taken in proposals, all these other base chains, that not only would not decentralize them, would actually centralize them further. Hmm. And so what you're creating is then just, a utility asset and a utility asset inherently loses the fight for liquidity mm. because you don't hold utilities. No one pays. I was on with Stefan Levera earlier and he gave an example. No one pays their bank fees in advance. You're not hit holding <laughs> bank fee token because you want to pay your bank fees in advance. Like no one does that. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah. It's like kind of like gift cards for a parking ticket penalties or something. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fairly fair statement that there is sort of like a, an inherent disadvantage to utility tokens versus something that's trying to be money. Well, so how do you think this plays out? Do you really see sort of like DeFi being built on Bitcoin or, you know, like a lot of these, uh, you know, DeFi crypto projects sort of like collapsing? Or like, is there going to be a giant liquidity event or something to that effect where you know things crash like some significant amount in a single day because of the systemic risk what do you see <laughs> happening no i so now you're getting my mr macro hat you get big mm-hmm. al's mr macro hat what i think is we're going to see a worse bear market than we saw i think we got bailed out by covid i think we got bailed out by the financial decisions by the fed in mm-hmm. this last bear market a lot of people in the ecosystem, including myself, have benefited from those decisions. But what I see is, no, it's not going to be a one-day crash because there is capital waiting on the sidelines. And they're going to mm-hmm. think they're getting these things at a discount. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that it will be a continuous bleed. Because mm-hmm. at some point, when liquidity in the macro markets dry up, people start to actually care about something called real-world value. <laughs> like if, if your central banks aren't just printing money, which means that your dollars and your real world monetary assets that you, you spend to pay your taxes, if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to jail. Like 
that gets lost. And essentially, what I view, what I think is going to happen is it's not going to be a one-day event. There will be big drawdowns like we saw the last time. It's just once those bad times come, people are going to decipher between what has real long-term value and what does not. And when it comes to Bitcoin, DeFi, and what gets rehypothecated onto Bitcoin, and rehypothecated, sorry, I'm using it incorrectly here versus where I've used it before. Look, if it's the same shenanigans I saw on you know, other chains, I will be the first to write another paper on this. I'm sure Alan will join me on that as well. Because Bitcoin is not infallible. Layer two solutions are not infallible. If they pull the same stuff, they will get a same 48-page paper. <laughs> but that is, that's my Mr. Macro hat on how this plays out. But I don't know when it happens. And again, no one has ever correctly predicted macro to the, you know, to the finest. Yeah, for me, this is like sort of the you've been warned kind of place. Because like, I think you laid out a very solid argument on why, like, as an ecosystem, they're not really providing a real world value. And therefore, it's completely dependent on new money coming in, which makes it basically a pump and dump. You know, like there are people all along the middle that are siphoning value here and there. Uh, so it's really a net negative game for everybody involved. And it's only sustained by new money coming in. And when that music stops, it's not going to be pretty. And I think everyone's going to recognize they're naked. All right. So anyway, you've been with me for almost an hour now. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you and follow you? Yeah, I think the easiest way to find me and contact me is the Big Al Twitter account. I guess it's Big underscore Al256. Jimmy, I'm sure you'll post a, a link to my Twitter account. I check it once a day. I'm not that active on Twitter, as anyone who follows that can see. Uh, that is my pseudonymous account. But to all your listeners, especially those, again, that disagree with me or us or Alan and I, I know that Alan and I are both open to hearing good criticisms. And please do DM us, and I will accept you know any thoughtful messages. As long as it's not just hate mail, I will accept the thoughtful <laughs> message, and I, I will respond. I'll find the time to respond, because that's been the best part of this paper is actually getting thoughtful message. Even when we were editing it, we gave it to people who we know would disagree with us. And that was amazing for us. Yeah. And, you know, like the people that you think in it, like are people like Muneev and uh, Balaji, who I know vehemently disagree with you guys. And uh, But you quote extensively in the paper and, and so on. So I, for that reason, I think if you are into DeFi, you really need to read this paper and like understand their argument because ultimately, I think you'll understand why this thing all seems like a house of cards with lots of naked people. So anyway, uh, thank you so much for being on. And yeah, we look forward to your next 48-page paper, but please publish it as a book. okay yes jimmy i'll do that and and thank you for having me on and i know alan wished he could be here but yeah i hope i was able to do us justice on this unchained capital is a sponsor of this podcast i'm an advisor to the company i know the team well and i'm excited for what they are building if you need multi-sig collaborative custody or a bitcoin native financial services partner learn more at unchained.com Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Big Al can be found at at 
Big underscore Al256 on Twitter. Until next time, Fiat de Linda Est.